Our God and Father, Lord, we praise you today. We have gathered in this place to sing your praises. For holy is your name, O God. O Lord, sacred and glorious is your name. We thank you for the gracious gift of life, for you give us life and breath and everything we have. And we thank you, Lord, for the privilege that we have to be forgiven of our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are grateful for the great things that you have done for us in and through him. We rejoice immensely in this great salvation that you have given to us, God. And we long to learn more about it. We long to allow your Holy Spirit to conform us into the image of Jesus. Lord, that we might be changed and become like him. So often each day, Lord, we're confronted with our shortcomings and our failures and our grieved over our non-virtuous character. And we ask, God, that you would change us. And so this morning we have gathered, Lord, to look into your word, to pay attention and to take heed to the things that you have said to us, that we might, in fact, be changed. That, Lord, we might be enlarged in our faith and in our love, that our love would abound more and more toward one another and toward you, God. And that, Lord, we might have great hope and perseverance in this dark and evil day as we eagerly await the soon coming of our Lord Jesus, even our great King. Oh, God, send him quickly that we might rejoice forever no more to trouble or harm in your presence forever. We thank you for the privilege of being able to gather here and freely proclaim your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, with that, we're back in our study of Second Thessalonians this year. And last week, we, uh, we covered uh, pages 66 through uh, the top half of 69 in the notes. And uh, I just want to remind you that uh, I'm not sure if there's still some copies of the old lessons there, but if not, we can certainly get some for you. Last year, we went through the whole book of 1 Thessalonians, which made up the teaching notes from page 1 through 65. And so there was a lot in there that we covered uh, on the book of First Thessalonians. And of course, you realize that being that this is the second letter to the Thessalonians, that this letter finds itself in the context of the first letter. Because when Paul writes Second Thessalonians, he's writing in response to their having read the first letter and then having responses to it to which he is addressing them in the second letter. So in understanding the second letter, it's extremely important that you understand the context of 1 Thessalonians, uh, which is something I'm going to talk about right away this morning as we start again down at the bottom of page 69. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about the eschatology that's involved in these two letters or the issues concerning the second coming of Christ and the last uh, uh, things. So... Remember, and I, I made this point last week as we were just looking at the introduction to Second Thessalonians, that it's extremely important that you understand this letter falls in the context of the first letter. And um, I'm going to point out this morning how important that is. Uh, I'm going to pick up down at the bottom of page 69 where it says there, Perusia coming in First and Second Thessalonians. So I want to point out to you that Paul was 
giving some pretty extensive teaching in the letter of 1 Thessalonians concerning the second coming of Christ. When he did that, he called it the coming. The word in the Greek is the parousia. You might have heard that before. Of course, last year we talked about this extensively, but I wanted to kind of enlighten you as to some of the things that Paul said about the coming or the parousia in 1 Thessalonians because those things are really pertinent to understanding what Paul is saying about the parousia in 2 Thessalonians. So uh, with that, I'll pick up down there at the bottom of page 69. It is important to note as we embark on a look at 2 Thessalonians how Paul used the term coming, parousia in the Greek, in 1 Thessalonians. This is because, this is because in 2 Thessalonians, Paul is building on the theological framework he built in 1 Thessalonians in order to further clarify and instruct on the topics at hand. So, you know, one of the important things is really the main point in the letter of 2 Thessalonians has to do with eschatological events. The ch- chapter 1 is mostly about the second coming of Christ, and chapter 2 is mostly about the person of the Antichrist. And so Paul uh, is, is uh, talking about these last things and filling in details that he had not previously provided in 1 Thessalonians. However, he's using terms and words that he did define in 1 Thessalonians when he's talking in 2 Thessalonians, and it's important to understand that in the background. So um, I'm reading uh, going on there. Of course, a major theme in both letters is the coming of the Lord which Paul is further clarifying details about in chapters 1 and 2 of 2 Thessalonians. One could argue that this is the main point of the letter. That is, the clarifications regarding the coming of the Lord. So if you will, uh, if you look at these scriptures I have printed out, starting at the bottom of page 69, these are where Paul is making reference in 1 Thessalonians. Now remember, as he's going through 1 Thessalonians, he actually... Uh, refers to the coming of the Lord in every single chapter of 1 Thessalonians, namely right at the end of the chapter. And then that kind of builds up this expectation where in chapter 4, he gives a vivid description of the second coming of Christ, starting in chapter 4, verse 15, and going all the way through chapter 5, verse 9. And so uh, some of these references in 1 Thessalonians are, for example... Uh, chapter 1, verse, uh, chapter one, verse uh, 10, Paul there makes reference saying, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. There he's talking about the Thessalonian Christians and he says that they are waiting for God's son from heaven. They're in this expectation. They're in this waiting that Christ is going to return. Later on in chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, he says, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. And so here Paul again brings up the coming of Christ. And and, and he says that, um, that these Thessalonian believers are Paul's joy and his rejoicing and his exaltation. When? At the coming of our Lord Jesus. When Jesus comes... These Thessalonian believers are going to be Paul's crown, his crown of service unto Christ, his rejoicing in the great fruit that God provided through his love and sacrifice and commitment to him. Amen? But he says this is going to happen when? At the coming of our Lord Jesus. So first he says, we're waiting for God's Son from heaven, and then he reminds them that there's going to be a day of celebration at his coming. He goes on, chapter 3, he says, uh, verse 13, So that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And so there he refers to this coming again. And he says, there he adds a few details, that this coming is going to be what? with all his saints, so that when Jesus comes, he comes with what? All his saints, his hagios, his holy ones, 
Amen? And of course, many places in Scripture, we're told that when the Lord returns, he's coming with his holy ones. And so, if you will, uh, Paul keeps building this expectation in 1 Thessalonians of this coming, where then in chapter 4, verse 15 and following, he begins to give a vivid description of it. He says there, 1 Thessalonians 4.15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the what? The coming of the Lord, the parousia of the Lord, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we be with the Lord. Okay? Shall we always be with the Lord? So uh, Paul begins to describe this parousia in chapter 4, verse 15. Of course, he continues that discourse about that time frame all the way into chapter 5, verse 9, where he, he equates it to the day of the Lord. And he talks about how that's going to come like a thief in the night to the unbelieving world. But that the believers are not going to be surprised in that manner. Because they're not children of the night. But they're children of the day. And they understand the season of the Lord's return. And they will be eagerly awaiting his return when he comes. They will not be, as Paul says, overtaken like a thief. But for the unbelieving world... When they're saying peace and safety, then what? Sudden destruction comes upon them all. Chapter 5, verse 3. He again mentions this coming of the Lord at the end of the book, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, where he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see how in every single chapter of 1 Thessalonians, this coming of the Lord is a theme. And um, he gives us a lot of information about the coming of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians. And I want to just paint a little picture of you for you uh, of what he does say about the coming in 1 Thessalonians. And so that's where I have these bullets at the top of page 70. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul established much detail regarding the coming of the Lord and what exactly happened at that time. Okay, so Paul gives us detail of what? Of what happens when Christ returns. He describes details that are taking place, specifically in the passage uh, 4.15 through 5.9. Okay? Of course, he gave the detail back in 3.13 that he was coming with all his saints. But then in chapter 4 and following, he starts giving more detail. So, for example, I highlighted a few. The first one, the coming would be personal and bodily. 1 Thessalonians 4.16. So notice what it says. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. His coming is personal. He's not just sending a representative. He's coming himself. Christ's return is a personal return. He comes in the person and in the body. The Lord himself appears in his body in the sky. <laughs> right? He, uh, he points out that the coming would be visible by the entire world. That the coming would be visible by the entire world. For example, in chapter 5. He says, now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, verse 1. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they, they, that is the unbelieving world, are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day would overtake you as a thief. So here both unbelievers and believers are in view. And this day is coming upon them all. 
Amen? And of course, we know this. The second coming of Christ is so vivid in other places in Scripture. For example, in Matthew 24, uh, verses 29 and following, it says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon won't give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and with great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a loud trumpet call and gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of earth to the other end of heaven, he says in Mark 13, 27. And so if you will, it's going to be visible by the whole world. All the tribes of the world will mourn, the scripture says, at the second coming of Christ. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 says, Behold, he's coming on the clouds, and what? Every eye will see him. When Christ comes, it is he will be visible by the whole world. He goes on, <clears throat> The coming was the partial fulfillment of the Old Testament day of the Lord. So as we see, Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17, the second coming of Christ, then in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, he identifies that as the day of the Lord. And saying that when that thing happens, the unbelieving world is going to be overtaken like a thief. They're going to be thinking, ah, finally this Antichrist has brought us a world government that gives us peace and safety. And what will happen? Christ will return. In the sky with power and glory and angels and trumpets. The sky, Revelation says, will roll up like a scroll. And every eye will see this. And all the nations of the earth will mourn when he arrives. He goes on. That this coming would surprise the unbelieving world. But the Christians would not be surprised by this as the season of his return was very clear to them. And that point is made in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 3 through 5, where he's telling the Christians, that day's not going to overtake you like a thief in the night. What's Paul's point? That the second coming of Christ is not going to overtake the Christians like a thief in the night. Why is that? Well, Paul's going to make that crystal clear in 2 Thessalonians. He is going to speak to that dilemma uh, specifically in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. That is, why the Christians won't be surprised. You remember that last week I told you, as a matter of fact, if you look halfway down page 69, there's a little section there about the tension between First and 2 Thessalonians concerning eminency. Some people reject Paul's authorship of 2 Thessalonians because they think there's an inconsistency in his teaching about the eminency of Christ's return. Where in 2 Thessalonians, he's saying, these specific signs are going to precede the Lord's return. Whereas in 1 Thessalonians, he speaks of it as an unexpected event. And they, they see that tension and they say, see, this can't possibly be Paul writing both these letters because he had these two different views. And of course, I propose a resolution for that right there on page 69 that this tension is easily resolved by an examination of these passages and a clear understanding of the intent and scope of the doctrine of eminency. So the point is, is that, is it unexpected? Or are there signs that precede it that tell us when it's about to happen? And the answer is yes. Yes, it's unexpected. No man knows the day or the hour. That doesn't mean that we won't know the season. And if you read the Olivet Discourse, in all three places, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, in all those places, Jesus speaks about signs that precede his return, and yet he says, you must be ready because you don't know the day or the hour. What he's basically saying is, we know the season by the signs that are happening, but we don't know exactly when it will be. And so he urges us with that then to be ready because we don't know the day or the hour, right? And, of course, his motivation there is our holy living. This same tension is brought up by Peter in Second Peter chapter 3 when he's talking about the day of the Lord. And he says to us, what kind of people ought we to be knowing that this day of the Lord is coming, right? 
We ought to be people living in eager expectation, pursuing holiness out of reverence for God. Amen? Amen. And the second coming of Christ and his unexpected return is certainly a motivation for our holiness, isn't it? (laughs) We don't want to be found uh, caught in the trap of sin when the Lord returns, do we? No. We want to be found being that faithful servant. Diligently waiting for the master's return. Amen. Lamps filled with oil. Lamps filled with oil. Because if you're those foolish virgins who don't have the oil, what comes of them? They will stand outside and knock and plead and say, Sir, open up the door for us. And I will say, Away from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. That's what happens to those who are left behind. Those who are left behind are not granted entrance into the kingdom. That's the point of the parable. So, going on, it would bring sudden destruction on the unbelieving world. Okay, These are all characteristics of the coming of Christ that Paul gave us in 1 Thessalonians. Another one was, it would be accompanied by the first resurrection of the dead in Christ. So, here's what Paul said. He said, at the coming of the Lord, the Lord himself is going to descend from heaven, right, with uh, the voice of the archangel, and he says, the dead in Christ will rise first. So what happens at the second coming of Christ? There's a great (laughs) resurrection of the dead. The dead in Christ rise from the dead. And what happens? We who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we be forever with the Lord. Amen? And so what happens at the second coming of Christ? There's a resurrection of the dead in Christ, and there's a rapture of living saints. These are events that accompany the second coming of Christ. That's Paul's point in 1 Thessalonians. It's more details that he gives. So then, the coming included both, last bullet there, his glorious appearing with angels and trumpets, as well as the rapture and resurrection. These happen at the same time. Okay, now, I, I worked diligently to make this point in First Thessalonians. And if you're shocked by the things I'm about to tell you, you need to go back and read the notes. And if you don't get it from there, you can listen to the audio teachings. They're on the website. And if that doesn't convince you, hang on and listen to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians because he's going to address these topics specifically in 2 Thessalonians and he's going to give further clarification. But here is the thing I'm trying to say. When Paul talks about the coming of the Lord or the parousia of Christ, he is equating that to be the very resurrection of the dead in Christ and the rapture of the living church. What I'm saying is, is that that is the same event. That the second coming of Christ and the rapture and the resurrection of the dead in Christ is the same event. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying is crystal clear in Pauline eschatology. Furthermore, if you go back and read the notes in, uh, on 1 Thessalonians, I provided a text comparison chart that shows you jot for jot, line for line, tittle for tittle, that Pauline eschatology is perfectly consistent with the Olivet Discourse. Specifically in the two passages where Jesus is teaching us about his coming in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13. Okay? So... Um, the, the interesting thing is, this becomes a main, main topic in 2 Thessalonians. Specifically, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Here's what I'm saying. Paul tells us that there are certain signs that will precede the second coming of Christ. And those signs are things that are taking place here in the 70th week of Daniel with the rise of Antichrist and the persecution of the church 
and the great apostasy of the church and the revelation of the Antichrist himself. That's what Paul addresses in this passage of text. What I'm saying to you is it's important to understand the framework and the groundwork that Paul built in 1 Thessalonians where he says at the coming of the Lord, he's going to descend from heaven and the dead in Christ are going to rise first and then we who are alive and remain are going to be caught up to meet him in the air. Okay? So um, if you're not convinced, just hang on. We'll uh, be talking about that in great detail in the weeks to come. Okay, halfway down on page 70. Therefore, when Paul speaks of the coming of the Lord in 2 Thessalonians, we must understand that he has already laid this groundwork. The groundwork being the bullets right above that I showed you there. That Christ's coming will be personally, personal and bodily. It will be visible. It will be a surprise to the unbelieving world that um, the Christians will not be surprised by that, that uh, it will uh, include a sudden rapture of living saints, it will include sudden destruction on the unbelieving world, and, and that his glorious appearing will be accompanied with angels and trumpets and the rapture and the resurrection, I might add, exactly like it says in Matthew 29, 24, 29 through 31. All of those features are presented right there, including the rapture itself. So, uh, notice the similarities, that is, in uh, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, but also the added details given in 2 Thessalonians when he is giving further clarifications to what he had written in 1 Thessalonians. So, now... On the basis of those bullets that I showed you, which are details that Paul gave us in 1 Thessalonians, consider some of the things he says in 2 Thessalonians. For example, chapter 2, verse 1. I'm sorry, chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. He says this. To give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when, when, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And what does that sound like? Well, that's the parousia. That's the second coming of Christ. That's the thing he gave them such tremendous detail about that he already explained to them. It says there, verse 8, Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Sounds almost like a verbatim quote from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, doesn't it? When they're saying peace and safety, then what? Sudden destruction comes upon them. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, listen to what Paul says. He says, now we request of you, brethren, with regard to what? The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and what? Our gathering to him. Two events that are both crystal clear portrayed in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. He says that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or message or letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, that's pretty clear, isn't it? What's Paul saying? He says, before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him, what's going to happen? The apostasy must come first and the man of lawlessness must be revealed. That's Paul's point. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, he says, And then that lawless one, that is the Antichrist of whom he is talking about in this context, he says, will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Okay, so here in 2 Thessalonians, Paul is adding some more details. He's giving us some signs that are going to precede Christ's return. He's giving us uh, some added insight about what happens to the wicked and unbelieving when he comes. In chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, he's, he's saying the Lord's going to deal out retribution to them. 
And he gives some very, very amazingly difficult things to hear there. He says they're going to be um, destroyed with eternal destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. He um, adds these signs that precede the Lord's return. And now he says in chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, that when the Lord comes, he's going to destroy the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth and, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That immediately brings us into the context of Revelation chapter 19, where we see what happening. Jesus returning on a white horse. And when he comes, what does he do? He takes the Antichrist and the false prophet, and he does what? Throws him in the lake of fire. That's the last thing pictured in Revelation chapter 19. Just prior to what? The establishment of Christ's millennial kingdom, which is pictured in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Right? So then, consider then key details concerning the coming of the Lord, which Paul reaffirms in 2 Thessalonians. Okay, now, built on the framework of the bullets that we talked about from 1 Thessalonians concerning the coming of the Lord, now we're adding some more details that Paul gives us in 2 Thessalonians. The coming is seen as the glorious return with angels and the destruction of sinners as a partial fulfillment of the Old Testament day of the Lord. So when he comes, he's going to destroy sinners. He's going to bring judgment. That's Paul's very clear point, chapter 2, verses, chapter 1, verse 7 through 9. The coming is considered by Paul as the same event as the rapture and also the day of the Lord. That's clearly portrayed in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I'm sorry. Yeah, 1 through 2. Because there he says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him, he calls that in verse 2, the day of the Lord, which is the same thing he did back in 1 Thessalonians. He said when Jesus came on the clouds with the voice of the archangel... And there was the dead in Christ rose from the dead, and the living church was raptured. He said in chapter 5, verse 2 and 3, that that was the day of the Lord. Does the same thing again here in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 and 2. The coming rapture and day of the Lord is preceded by the apostasy and revelation of the Antichrist, which equates these events in the chronology of the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, verses 10 through 22, and then also verses 29 through 31. So the point here is that when Jesus made this chart for this very purpose. Do you have that chart? Mm -hmm. That chart right there was handed out on the uh, table. This chart is a chronology of events in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. This is where the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus starts off with the Olivet Discourse, and he gives them huge insight as to what will be the signs of his coming and of the end of the age. And as he goes through that text, he gives them a chronology of what's going to happen. He goes through and says, this will happen, and then that will happen. And at that time, this will happen. And during that time, this will happen. So when you see this happening, you know that this has happened. This is the kind of language that Jesus is employing in the Olivet Discourse. He's giving them a chronology of of events. And what you see very clearly in the Olivet Discourse is what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3. That is that there will be a great falling away or apostasy and the revelation of the Antichrist that precedes the coming of the Lord. It's exactly what Jesus said. What Paul is saying is exactly what Jesus said. And that's my point. So if you get some time, you might want to pull this chart out and read the text of Matthew 24, verses, uh, I think it's 3 through uh, 31. 
although you could read on from there and there's additional insight, um, and compare it to this chronology that I'm showing you is clearly portrayed in the words of Jesus. When, when you get this in your brain, okay, you'll really begin to see the similarities between Pauline eschatology and Jesus' eschatology. Really, Paul is just telling us what Jesus told us. He's simply clarifying for the Thessalonians what was written in the gospel account. That's what he's doing. Their eschatology, in my view, is perfectly consistent. Also then, the fourth bullet down there, toward the bottom of page 70, the coming is when Jesus will destroy the Antichrist, which equates all these references in First and Second Thessalonians with Revelation chapter 19 and 20, and also the Olivet Discourse. So what you find is that this event of the second coming of Christ is portrayed in these other texts of Scripture that get tied together with the different events that are mentioned there. Okay, So for example, in Matthew 24, verse 30, it says, At that time the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels and gather his elect. All those events that are right there are also portrayed in Pauline eschatology, aren't they? And so that tells us that what's happening there in Jesus' words is the same thing that's happening there in Paul's words. And when Paul begins to describe that in 2 Thessalonians, he also says that's when Jesus is going to destroy the Antichrist. Okay? Now what does that do? That ties us to the destruction of the Antichrist that we see pictured in Revelation chapter 19 when Jesus is returning on the white horse. And there he's got the kings of the earth gathered for war. And come for the great supper of God. Right? And the birds of the air shall eat the flesh of kings. Right? And, and there, uh, when Christ destroys the wicked and unbelieving world, he also destroys the Antichrist and the false prophet. And so we see these events in Revelation then, that they tie in in these specific sequences of events in the Olivet Discourse and also in the uh, Pauline eschatology. In both places, 1 Thessalonians and in 2 Thessalonians. Okay, So as these events get spoken of, we need to be really careful to read the words carefully to understand the context in which they're spoken and how they apply to these other passages of Scripture. Because even 2 Thessalonians finds itself in the context of 1 Thessalonians, right? And both Thessalonian letters find themselves in the context of what? The New Testament which also contains what? The book of Matthew and the book of Revelation. And even the New Testament finds itself in the context of what? The whole Bible. So that therefore the whole Bible is speaking to these things. So when we start talking about things like the 70th week of Daniel, right? Or we talk about the Antichrist. Did you, did you know that the Antichrist is spoken of in five different chapters in the book of Daniel? Did you know that the vision in chapter 7, he is one of the main figures that's there? Of course, Christ, that's a messianic passage. But, but nevertheless, the Antichrist is mentioned there. And, and not only that, but the, the destruction of the Antichrist is mentioned there. And you know what? It says, then the dominion and the sovereignty and the power of all the nations under the whole earth will be given to who? The saints, the people of the Most High. And there we learn that in the end, the church is going to possess sovereignty over all the nations of the earth. Right? That will be physically realized in the millennial kingdom. Right here. Because those of us with Christ in this period of time do what? Rule and reign. Right? Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 and following. So, okay. All of that with the last bullet here, the coming of the Lord is seen as bringing the final eschatological wrath of God, eternal judgment, on those who reject the gospel. Okay? That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. So there is some just absolutely fantastic and magnanimous events that are pictured in the book of 2 Thessalonians. And as I was saying last week, I think it's some of the most profound writing in the whole Bible. Namely because 
in Paul's writing, as I brought this up last week, but I want to point it out again, Paul's writing is not apocalyptic writing. It's not some veiled prophetic images that some revelator is seeing these visions and trying to give us this, these heavenly visions in, in human language, right? Paul is giving us a didactic teaching very specifically. He's giving us uh, very clear instruction. It's not like, you know, I, Paul, went off into heaven and I saw these grand visions and let me try to describe them to you. You with me? It's not like that. That's apocalyptic language. That's what happened to Daniel, right? That's what happened to Ezekiel many times. That's what happened to uh, John the Revelator when he wrote, when he wrote Revelation. Right? And of course, Revelation is just one vision after another vision after another vision. Right? And it's just all this apocalyptic language. And, and I've read the book of Revelation, I don't know how many times, more than I can count on both hands for sure. Right? And every time I read it, I sit there and scratch my head, thinking, how in the world does all this fit together? Have you been there? Yeah. <laughs> so <clears throat> the point is, that's apocalyptic writing. Okay? That's a certain genre of biblical context. We call it apocalyptic. All right? This is not that. Second Thessalonians, Paul's writing in Second Thessalonians is a didactic passage. And he is giving us some very clear and specific instruction. And um, so, if you will, that's what makes it some of the most profound writing because Paul is laying down some maxims that are exact descriptions of specific eschatological events that are going to take place and he's also giving some chronology and some sequence and some order and many details that we've been looking at that describe what will actually happen. We really do have a lot of insight. There's a sense in which we have a lot of insight of what's going to happen at the second coming of Christ. Specifically because of the things that Paul told us. Amen? Okay then. So with these things in mind Remember that 2 Thessalonians is found having the context of 1 Thessalonians in the background. This is important to remember as we dig in to 2 Thessalonians. So then, that brings us to the text of the letter itself. And there at the top of page 71, I have provided an outline from Nelson's Bible Dictionary. I really like their teaching outlines of of uh, books of the Bible. They, they seem to do a really good job of breaking the text into sections that are dealing with different topics. So if you will, you can kind of take a, a look at the whole context of the book of Second Thessalonians on that outline, and you can see how um, the different sections of text speak about a certain theme. It's interesting to note, if you look under Roman numeral 1, item B. It says encouragement in their persecution. Well, that's true. That's exactly what Paul's doing. He's encouraging the Thessalonians because uh, they are suffering severe persecution still, just like they were back in 1 Thessalonians. Um, But now Paul is writing to them and he's saying, look, let me tell you something. This isn't going to go on forever. And the Lord is going to come back and he is going to avenge your suffering. And he gives them some very specific details about what's going to happen. And and not only that, he tells them in that encouragement that the fact that you're suffering as a Christian is a plain indication of the righteous judgment of God that is to come upon them. And God is just he is going to punish them for their crimes. And we're going to talk about that at length because that's, that's pictured in uh, chapter 1, verses uh, 5 and 6. And then um, in verses 7 through 9, he really talks about the second coming of Christ and the destruction of the wicked. So even though we have these events portrayed about the second coming of Christ and what he does to the, to the rebellious sinners of the world, that really falls under the heading of encouragement in their persecution. Because he's telling them that data to encourage them in their persecution and in their suffering. 
Uh, then if you look under uh, Roman numeral 2, you kind of see a whole breakdown of the section um, in verses 1 through 12 uh, dealing with um, the day of the Lord and the rise of Antichrist to power. And Paul is going to give some very specific instruction about what goes on when the Antichrist is on the face of the earth. And uh, that's why I gave you the preparatory reading in the book of Daniel in chapter 7 and chapter 8. Look, the Antichrist is pictured in Daniel chapter 7. He's pictured in Daniel chapter 8. He's pictured in Daniel chapter 11. And, and um, it's right at the end of 11, really, where he kind of is, he's, uh, he's done with. Because in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, also what's pictured there is the rapture. And what's pictured there in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, is uh, God uh, avenging his people. And, and, uh, and basically the, the destruction of the Antichrist is pictured as well there in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. So, um, you see, Paul was a zealous Jew. Paul knew the scriptures inside and out. So when Paul starts espousing things about the Antichrist, man, he's got, he's got the Old Testament imagery of the Antichrist very clearly in his mind. Well, you see, that all comes mostly, basically, from, from uh, the book of Daniel itself. So you can read those four chapters in Daniel, although I would suggest you read from chapter 7 all the way through chapter 12. Um, uh, that's where you get all the Old Testament data about the Antichrist. There's no other section in the Old Testament that I'm aware of that speaks about the Antichrist. It's all there in Daniel. But so when Paul starts giving instruction about what's happening then and there, right, he's got not only the background of his knowledge of the book of Daniel, but he's also got what? The personal instruction of the Lord Jesus himself who also gave us some details. Of course, we have details in the, in, in, the, uh, in the gospel accounts of what Jesus talked about concerning the Antichrist. What did he say? He said, so when you see the abomination of desolation, right, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, right? He says, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not happened from the beginning of the world until that time. See, Jesus says, when the Antichrist shows up, that's when the Great Tribulation takes place. Okay? And so, uh, if you will, um, Paul has not only Daniel's uh, insight, but his instruction from Jesus as well. I'm not suggesting necessarily just the Gospel account, but we know that Paul was personally instructed by Jesus. And so, um, so Galatians 1 makes really clear. Um, but um, uh, Paul is going to give us a tremendous amount of insight on the Antichrist. And he's going to talk about what it will be like in the cultures and the peoples of the world during the reign of the Antichrist, which is an extremely deceptive time in human history. In other words, he dupes the whole world. Right? And that same set of events that happens there in Second Thessalonians 2 is also pictured by Apocalypsis in Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13 portrays the rise of the Antichrist to power, his deception over all the nations of the earth, and the very things that he brings about, which, if you will, are his religious and economic system that we refer to as the mark of the beast. And, and during that time... Uh, Again, we see these events that happen. It's, it's very profound, is it not? And interesting that the Bible speaks about this Antichrist in all these places. That there's so much data given in Scripture about this man and what he does. So that we had better take heed to the things that are written there, that we not be duped in that day, should that day come upon us in our lifetime. Are you with me? And this is what Paul says in Second Thessalonians. He says... Do not be deceived in any way. If you go read in, in the Olivet Discourse, do you know what Jesus says? They say, Lord, they're sitting on the, Olive, on the Mount of Olives, and they look down, and there's the glorious temple, and they say, 
you know, Lord, uh, uh, look at these great buildings. And Jesus says, let me tell you, days coming when there won't be one stone left on another. And they say, wow. Right? And then they say, Lord, well, tell us, what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? You know what the first thing out of Jesus' mouth is? Do not be deceived. Right? Do not be deceived about these events of the end time, of which he goes on and for the entire Olivet Discourse is answering their question and gives a ton of information. Okay? It is going to be a very deceptive time. Did you know that old devil? You know what he is, right? He's a liar. He's the father of lies. You know what liars do, right? They deceive. And when when he comes and tries to bring his final blows to the war against the kingdom of God and the person of the Antichrist, it's going to be a very, very deceptive time. This man is going to do miracles and signs and wonders like we never saw. And those things are portrayed not only in Second Thessalonians, but also in the account of, uh, of uh, Revelation chapter 13. And it's very interesting to consider what this man is all about and what he's doing and where, where he fits in the providential and sovereign plan of God in bringing the world to fruition. You understand, Antichrist couldn't do a thing unless God gave him the ability and the power. Amen? Amen. You know, like Luther said, you know, the devil is God's devil. Right? He's God's devil. God made the devil. God governs the devil. Read Job chapter 1. You'll see that. Right? He's on a leash. He can only go so far. Why? Because God is sovereign. Because God is providential. Right? Because whatsoever happens in the course of history happens at the decree of God. The devil's not just running around loose on the earth doing whatever he wills, but only what he is permitted by the sovereignty of God. That's crystal clear in the context of the Bible, is it not? Okay, well, so, same with Antichrist. He's God's Antichrist. (laughs) Right? That's why we're not going to be shaken with trembling and fear when we read about the Antichrist, right? It may not be a pleasant thing to consider what might be happening then and there for us or for our progeny, right? But we do know that finally and ultimately, he's only going to be here for a short time, and then guess what? Snuffs, toast, fire, right? He's going to meet his destruction. And um, what a glorious day that will be. Amen? Okay. Well, that brings us to 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. There Paul writes, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He writes here, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. And so I point you to page 6 in the notes on 1 Thessalonians because he gives the same greeting there. And I kind of wrote at length there things which I'm only going to repeat a few things here. Even though both Silas, okay, so the name Silvanus is simply Silas' Greek name, okay? So this is Paul and Silas and Timothy. That's who he's talking about when he says Silvanus. Even though both Silas and Timothy are included in the greeting, this is simply a consolation of grace on Paul's part to include them as they were fellow workers with him in the church's conversion and ongoing health. You remember that when Paul went through Thessalonica preaching the gospel, that both Silas and Timothy were with him. And they were on this mission trip with him. And when they got to Thessalonica, they were there preaching in a synagogue for three weeks when the Jews got angry and went and gathered up a mob and came and they ran them out of town. So it wasn't just Paul that got run out of town. It was Paul and Silas and Timothy, right? Ran them out of town and they ran to Berea. Berea. (laughs) 
And when they landed in Berea, guess what happened? Somebody tell me what happened. Them Jews came all the way from Thessalonica to Berea, and they ran them out of Berea, too. That's how angry they were. And then they went back, and guess what? Started persecuting that church. And that's pictured all there in Acts chapter 17. Even the persecution of Thessalonian believers is seen in Acts chapter 17. Okay, uh, so this was a frequent practice by Paul, whose authorship of the Thessalonian letters is rarely questioned, noting the use of the personal pronoun I. And, of course, that's in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, 3.5, and 5.27. Paul also uses the personal pronoun I in the book of 2 Thessalonians. Paul, the apostle, is the author of both 1 and 2 Thessalonians. But then also he writes and he says, To the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, so often we read these salutary greetings. And I think it's the quickest verses of Scripture that we just read right by. Yeah. You know, I'm going to dive into Second Thessalonians. All right. Okay, here we are. All right, get her out. All right, here we go. <laughs> Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Grace and peace to you. You with me? Yeah. That's, how, that's how I've done it so many times, right? Have you ever stopped to consider what's being said? It's profound. It's profound what Paul said. I was thinking through the implications of this statement um, over the weekend. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul calls this gathering of people a church. Of course, that Greek word is Ecclesia, right? Which means what? The called out ones. The ones whom God has called out. He says they're a church. Which means, by virtue of that, that they are called of God together. God is the originator of their gathering. Right? But more than that, he says about them that they are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about this. I wonder when you walk in so-called churches today, if when you walk in, it's unblameably clear that these gathering of people is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That they are the preeminent ones in that place. And that that's crystal clear for all to see. And not only that, not only is it God the Father, the Almighty God to whom they sing their praises and worship, who is at the center and the pinnacle of their worship, right? But in that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven, who is Jesus, Yeshua, the one who saves, right? Who is the Christ, God's anointed one to come and bear the sins, of those who are gathered in the place. Amen? Are you with me? I wonder if you walk into church and they're just playing a bunch of silly games. Or if this is really a church that is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's God-centered. And it's Christ-centered. And they are the objects of worship preeminently and clearly in that gathering of people. Are you with me? Yeah. I tell you, T and I were talking about a website this week. You go on the website and he, he's, he's looking through the website, can't even find the word God. Oh. Yeah, I have a church. A church. I'm not going to tell you which church. Church right here in Albuquerque. <laughs> but But, you know, Looking at the website and trying to figure out what, what this people are, what are they communicating through this media here, right? Can't even find the word God, much less those things which are pertinent to him. Amen? Well, we're out of time, so let's pray.
God, our Father, we praise you and we thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us that follows us all the days of our life. Oh, Lord, these events that you speak of in Scripture are so frightening, awesome, and displays of your majesty and power that just shock us. I pray, Lord, that we would see that this is the coming day of our deliverance, that this is the coming day of our rejoicing who are in Christ. And that, Lord, I pray that we would be motivated to persuade men to flee from the coming wrath. That, Lord, we would be willing to love them enough to risk our skin to tell them the truth, even as these Thessalonians were. Lord, I I pray that as we dig into this word, that you would just make this book of 2 Thessalonians so crystal clear to us that, Father, it's just etched in our heart and mind for the rest of our days. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather here and to study your word. Because of Jesus' holy cross, we pray. Amen.